We're in Nehemiah, and today we're talking about vision, villains, and victories. Uh, we're taking lessons about rebuilding community, rebuilding relationship, rebuilding the church uh, after the chaos and the, the disruption of these last many months. We're using the lessons that we learned from the amazing man named Nehemiah, who was the bartender for the king of Persia when God taps him on the shoulder and invites him to return to, to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls of that city, to put back the gates that will keep it uh, safe and, and secure. Uh, in all of that, last week we used this phrase that was so meaningful, the gracious hand of God is on me. And that wasn't just true for, for Nehemiah in his time. It's true for me. It's true for you. And uh, he will help me do all that he's called me to do. He will protect me. He will provide for me. The gracious hand of God is upon me. There's a new line this week that I want you to pick up, and, and, and it's in the same chapter, chapter 2. And, and we start in verse 11 here. Time in this memoir of Nehemiah is, is so important. He, he's on loan from Persia to Jerusalem, and he has so much to do. And so time is a big thing, and he needs to spend it wisely. So, so Nehemiah makes a lot of mention about time. And, and it takes him about 30 days to get from where he was in Persia all the way back to Jerusalem. And once he arrives, he takes a three-day rest. He, he uses the time to reconnect with friends and family. He, he gets a feel for what's going on in the city. He's asking questions. What, what, what mood is, are the people in? Uh, what, what state is the city's infrastructure? He, he takes three days sort of being a sightseer. Because he's never been to Jerusalem before. He's ne he wasn't born there. He, he, he was born after they were captives and born in a different country. And at the end of the three days, he waits until darkness comes. The dark of night comes. And he waits until the city's gone to sleep. And he slips out of his lodging. And, and he takes a tour of the city walls. This is the key phrase in that chapter in, that, that is so important. I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. This is a God project. This is not Nehemiah hearing a sad story and feeling some mercy, feeling some, some pity for the Jewish people and saying, hey, I, I should do something. God had set this man up. He had called him to be the overseer of this rebuild. God had spoken clearly, this job is your job, Nehemiah. This is the assignment. Get the wall built. My city needs to be strongly protected from its enemies. The gates need to be replaced. The wall needs to be rebuilt. I need you to do the work of bringing my people together to get it done. Allow me to remind you that there was nothing in sight that would make this project possible. We have no reason to believe that Nehemiah has any experience in building. He, he was a bartender in Persia. The, the wall was decimated. There, there wasn't big stones left. It, it, it had been reduced to rubble. 
the people were living in a PTSD state of uh, where, where they were living in dust and in the ruin of the city, and they don't believe that anything good can happen, will happen, that, that there's no hope that the city could ever be what it once was. Nehemiah had bought, brought beams from the Persian forest, but what about all the other tools? What about all the other materials that would, would be needed? Not, not a building store to be found anywhere. He, he was to do something with nothing. That, that is, however, the way God works. He takes the frail, the feeble, the foolish, and he does something grand so that people know that it's God's project. To, to a regular Joe on the street, the tour that Nehemiah is about to take would have been a major disappointment. You had heard that the walls had been knocked down, but you couldn't imagine, you couldn't even wrap your mind around the devastation. You knew that the, the gates had been destroyed by fire, but you would notice that there wasn't even a hinge or a latch that could be salvaged and reused. Let, let me give you a picture about the size of the wall. If, if you know about our church location here, the, the size of the wall would be equivalent to starting here at the corner of the church and going up the street to 16th Avenue and going east and then coming back down 52nd and then coming west on Marbank Drive. Two and a half miles of, of, of wall. And not only was the wall long, but it's high. It's 39 feet high. Six six-foot men stacked on top of one another and a three-foot child on top of all of that. It's long, it's high, and it's about eight and a half feet wide, a, a city street lane wide. It, it's a big project. It's a hard project. And, and the normal doubting person, when you see all that has to be done, when you understand the labor force that you have, men and, and women who who have no experience, have no, no expertise, you have a shortage of materials, no, no heavy equipment, not even a bobcat to, to move the rubble out of the way. You, you may be tempted when you're on tour at night to just slip out of the gate and keep walking till you get back to Persia. But that, that phrase that I read to you earlier is an important phrase. The plans that God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. That meant Nehemiah was not an ordinary Joe on, on a midnight stroll looking at the destruction and the disappointment. He, he was a man who was hearing the voice of God say, this is what we are going to do. This is how we are going to do it. This is where we're going to start. This is the plan. There is a plan. He, he was being filled with faith and with confidence in God and in all that God could do. You need to hear this. I need to hear this. Whenever God calls us to do something, He supernaturally enables us to accomplish it. This was not a Nehemiah project. This was a God project. 
from the beginning. It, it was God that made sure that Nehemiah received an updated news bulletin about the need in Jerusalem. It was God that made sure he was released from his obligations to the king of Persia so that he could be released to go to Jerusalem. It was God that supplied the wooden beams that would be needed for the gates. It was God that arranged for army officers and horsemen to keep Nehemiah safe on the journey from, from Persia to, to Jerusalem. It, it was God that had put all of this in Nehemiah's heart. It was God, and that makes all the difference. That made the difference for Nehemiah. He wasn't seeing destruction. He was seeing God. He was feeling and knowing that God was what he needed. From gate to gate, he surveys the walls or what should have been the walls. Verse 14 says that he'd been riding on his donkey around the walls. But at this point, at this particular place in the wall, my donkey couldn't get through, could not manage to keep his footing in the rubble. My donkey couldn't, couldn't proceed. It must have looked like the streets of London after the World War II bombings that had taken place. Total devastation. He, he has to move from the inside to the outside to, to see, to, to look in, because it was easier to move, easier to, to assess how complete and how devastating the damage is. He goes all the way around the walls from beginning to end, and he returns to where he had started. And then he goes home, and he goes to sleep. The city of Jerusalem, as broken down as it was, did have a, a sort of governing tribunal, a, a, a council that was making decisions on daily life. It had politicos, it had religious leaders, it had cultural leaders, it had appointed officials who took care of various aspects of, of the administration of that city. It was a team that decided how things would work, what would happen, and how it would be carried out in this broken down little town that was trying to just exist. None of them were aware. None of this council was aware of why Nehemiah was there, nor what he was doing kicking around the rubble and the gates and the walls of the city by darkness of night. There were, are those moments when you, you need to ponder, when you, you need to have quiet time, where, where you go to a private place of your heart to measure out what God is saying, what he's asking of you. You need to ask the questions that stand tall in your heart and in your mind. You have choices and the choices need to be made so that you can either move forward with God or turn around and run away from God. You have choices. When Mary had the angel tell her that she would give birth to the Messiah, the text reads that she carefully, privately, pondered these things, rolled them around in her heart and her mind. Psalm 25 says that the secret of the Lord is with them that reverence him. 
God, God shows up and, and he tells you his secrets for, for success to the project that you've been called to carry out. You, you don't jump in without understanding. You, you don't jump in without counting the cost, without the commitment that needs to be made that you'll not only start the project, but that you'll finish it. You see, Jesus is pretty careful in saying that the importance of the assignment is not getting it started, but it's making it to the finish line. Luke chapter 9, verse 62, Jesus speaking says, Why do you keep looking back at your past and having second thoughts about following me? If you turn back, you're not fit for God's, for God's kingdom. Starting is good. But Jesus says, it's the finish line. It's, it's the completion of what you've been given to do that really counts. Nehemiah keeps quiet until he's sure of what God is saying, until he has the plan of God and the timing of God in his grasp, uh, until he has the go-ahead from God to move the people from disappointment and fear to boldly launching into one of the most dynamic and difficult and challenging rebuilding programs ever. There was no one in that city who had the thought, had the inclination that this was a possible dream. There was no one that had said, hey, you know, what would it be like if we had walls again? So, so almost as big a task as getting the walls up would be getting the people to, to think that this project was, was possible, despite all of the obstacles that were in front of them. When God said, it's time to rebuild the walls, there was no one in Jerusalem that had the thought that it could be done. God had to go 900 miles away to tap Nehemiah on, on the shoulder and ask him to come back and fix what was broken at home. Nehemiah has counted the cost. He, he, he's looked closely at the project, and now he was ready to call the city leadership together, the town together, and surprise them with the vision of what God had said was possible. In verse 17 and 18, he calls for a town meeting. He stands up, but now I said to them, you know very well what trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king of Persia. The vision has two parts. It has the reality of what now is, and it has the divine possibility of, of what could be, what, what should be. We're in trouble. The city is in ruin. There's no way of keeping out plundering armies who, who would have easy pickings if we're, we had anything at all here that they wanted. They, they could just walk in and take it away. Right now we have nothing, and that's the reality, he says. But here's the possibility. Let's rebuild together. Let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. 
We, we don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in abject poverty so as not to capture the attention of our enemies. There is hope. There, there is God. God desires us to be strong. He desires us to be healthy and prosperous people. Let's not settle for, for weak, for needy, for poor. The question, of course, is, but how? We, we don't have anything to do all that needs to be done. We have no money. We have no expertise. We've been two and a half generations who have lived in slavery. And we have very few craftsmen, very few builders amongst our numbers. So I told them about how the gracious hand of God has been upon me. I told them about the favor of God that's been evident from the, the moment I got the news until this very moment. I told them about my conversation with the king of Persia. I, I related to them all that God has been up to in getting me, getting us to this point. I, I challenged them to work together to end the disgrace. L let's build this wall together. Let, let's restore her gates. I, I made the need evident, the vision clear. The response was immediate. Verse 18, they replied at once and in unison, yes, let's build the wall. Let's rebuild the wall. And so they began the work. Let's do it. The transformation is remarkable. They, they had been content. They had been willing to live in the mess that was Jerusalem because they didn't have any sense of God's love, God's help, God's intervention. They had no leader. They had no plan. They, they had no idea where to start or, or how to do what needed to be done. There was no hope. And so God sends a leader. God releases hope. God gives the plan. God will supply the need. And when they see it, they respond, this is a God thing. Let's rebuild the wall. When they took it further than a unanimous vote of just saying, yes, this seems like a good idea, further than words, and they began to do the work. It's one thing to say, yes, we like that plan. We like that idea. But, but it's another thing altogether to show up at the crack of dawn and pick up your tools and start to do the work, start to shovel the rubble into the wheelbarrow. Let's get started. You, you've heard me say for three and a half decades, and I say it yet again, for every step that we take in obedience to God, we have an enemy who pushes on us tries to drive us back two steps. He, um, he's not happy when we do what God's will asks us to do. And so he, he tries to, to push us back. He, he doesn't always show up in his Halloween costume. He sometimes hires people to do his dirty work. And, and this is where the three villains, the villains that have been sent by the enemy to disrupt, to, to delay, to destroy the vision appear. They don't come with guns and cannons. They, they come with intimidation. They come with words, with threats. And there are three of them. 
Sanballat, whose, whose name is a Babylonian name that means the moon god whose name is Sin gives me life. And that gives you a little bit of clue there as to the motivation of his heart. He shows up five times throughout the memoir and, and he has just this energy to, to gum up the works, to stop the project and bring it to a halt. He's the governor of a small Samaritan state that's north of Jerusalem. And he brings with him Tobiah, whose name is connected with the worship of God, but, but he is an Ammonite, and that means that he, he doesn't believe in the God of Israel. He, he is opposed to the God. He's opposed to the people of God. And so he comes with his agenda. And then there's Geshem, the governor of an Arabian province that's just south of, of Jerusalem. And he would have had the ability to pull together a confederacy of Arab armies together in a short period of time to hit that city and hit it hard, to knock it flat. So, so they stand there. They represent a security threat. They have resources. They, they live in secure cities. They have food sources and wealth and armies. And so before they even open their mouth, they portray their confidence. Th their very presence indicates that this is not going to be as easy as we thought it might have been. But, but then they raise their voice. And, and the tone indicates that it's bad. It's, it's really bad. Worse than we thought. They know the plan that Nehemiah has in place, that Jerusalem is going to attempt to, to rebuild the walls and the gates. And so they start out and they say, they scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king who has authority over this territory? You can't do that. Here are some reasons why. This is a, a project that the king of this territory and the neighboring kings will not allow you to carry on. They'll see it as a mutiny. They'll see it as rebellion. And you're off, you're, you, your efforts will be quashed instantly. They will not let this, they cannot let this happen. It would be best for you to put your tools down and back away from the wall. You must not forget that you are a defeated lot. You have no power. You have no enemy. Or you have no army. You have, you have nothing. You're just slaves. You've been defeated for seven decades, for two generations. How dare you believe that you can be better than that? Enemies generally know where the pressure points are. And they know how to hit those points to cause us pain, to cause us doubt, to cause us to fear. If God hasn't spoken, if God hasn't shown up, if God hasn't given you a picture or a plan, if you've not come to believe that God knows what He's doing and how He's going to do it, then there's no need for villains to show up at your door to threaten your agenda. But, but God, when God has spoken, when God has promised, when God has put His plans in your heart, when God has poured His presence and His power into the chasm of fear and self-doubt that used to be you, you can stand up to those intimidating bullies who work for someone who's renowned for being the father's, father of lies, and you can put them down with the truth.
Verse 20, I replied, Nehemiah says, the God of heaven, the God of heaven will help us succeed. We, his servants, will start rebuilding the wall. But you have no share. You have no legal right or historic claim in Jerusalem. The God of heaven will help us succeed. It's a declaration that is so marvelous, so powerful. It's the second tattoo. We talked about the tattoo last week that we put it just below our our shoulder and above our heart that says the gracious hand of God is upon me. And, And this tattoo I put right on my wrist where every day as I'm working, as I'm as I'm toiling, I can be reminded by that the God of heaven will help me succeed. Each shovel load of rubble put into the wheelbarrow with each block added to the wall, with every hinge added to every gate, I am constantly reminded of this fact, no matter how hard, how difficult, how costly, we will succeed. The God of heaven will help us succeed. Nehemiah not only uses that phrase to establish momentum and courage in his people, he uses it as a legal boundary against his enemies. The God of heaven will help us succeed. You have no legal claim or right to this project. You have no authority over the agenda of this people. You have no legal ability to stop, halt, or hinder this project. You have no historic claim on Jerusalem. It's the city of God. You have no say. You were noisy. You were powerless. You were annoying. But get off our front step and let us do our God-given work. The earth is the Lord's, the Bible says, and the fullness thereof. He has the legal rights to do what will and what will not happen. He, he has the ability to move his cause forward, no matter what any man or being says. Enemies are inevitable. They can look formidable, but God. Boundaries are set. Authority has to be recognized. Fear has to be put in its place. The purpose of God has to be enforced and moved forward by the people of God, the people who wear His name. Us, the God of heaven, will help us succeed. It's true for our nation. It's true for our province. It's true for our city. It's true for our church. But maybe even more important this morning, this is true for your household. It's true for your life. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to do you good and to bring you success. The God of heaven will help you succeed. How dare you believe? How dare you hope for better than this is what this chaotic, messy, divisive, period of time is telling us as a people. This is your new normal. This is where you will stay for life. This is how you will live in fear and anxiety, in want and in disgrace. But I have words of encouragement for you. The God of heaven will help us succeed. The God of heaven. It's If it's not marked on our heart or on our wrist, it has to be tattooed in our mind. The God of heaven will help us succeed. The win is inevitable. 
The enemy is defeated. The word is hard, but the outcome, the work is hard, but the outcome is promised. The God of heaven will help us, will help you succeed. Let me pray for you. Father, I know that these times have taken something out of us. There has been something of a dismay, something of a discouragement, something that has stolen hope. But I'm asking you with this word of Nehemiah that the God of heaven will help us succeed, will come alive, that you'll breathe on that word and cause it to come alive in each heart, in each life, so that we know that God, what you're asking us to do is not not impossible. Nothing is impossible for you. And so you at work in us can make that which seems impossible, possible. Breathe that word. Make it come to life in every heart, I pray. The God of heaven will help us succeed.